Oh, welcome to the Backyard Professor videos. Uh, I've had some really cool serendipity moments and interesting coincidences this last few days. Uh, and so I have a, a, a video I want to make on the, on the interesting subject of the Kingdom of God. And I know, yeah, bear with me, I promise. Uh, it, it's a big subject, of course. I never pick the small ones because I really love to dig in and try to go, man, go. Well, thousands of articles, hundreds of books, etc. Uh, have occurred with this subject. <laughs> and and uh, all I can do is kind of scratch the surface. You know, what I like to do in my particular case is I like kind of going off the beaten track, more or less, and let, let's look at something uh, with a little bit different skew, uh, from a little bit different perspective, from a new angle, from, uh, from a different type of literature. Something to that effect, right? Let's not just do more of the run of the same old mill general conference type crap. Let's, let's look at this, really. So... Uh, my hint came from, I just finished the, recently I just finished this book, Hugh Nibley Observed, a huge book about Hugh Nibley. Gary Gillum, uh, it, several scholars described their experiences with him, their impressions of him, his philosophy, his history, his prowess as an apologist and a church defender, yada, 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 right? So it's a celebration of a magnificent life, a great book, fun to read, really fun to read. Gary Gillum noted, and this is on page 415 and 416, and actually I'm going to read all the way up into 417, but it, the next page has a huge picture, so it's not a lot of reading. It's no secret that Nibley is fond of the New Testament Apocrypha, and Gillum you know, he labels the Gospel of Thomas as apocryphal. I don't buy that, but that's how Gillum put it. But he said, interestingly, that Nibley was particularly fond of the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. Now, this is one of those Gospels that did not make it into the canon of the New Testament. The New Testament, of course, is a political compilation of people who wanted the church as an institution to succeed. And so in lieu, in the way to help them succeed, they needed a unified literature. So what they did is they took whatever was, was written in their day, two and three and four hundred years after Christ, they took the writings that they themselves agreed upon and said, well, I do like what this is saying because that will help me support the idea of an institutional church. And I do like this one. I don't like that one. I don't like that one. That one's okay. That's good. Oh, hey, we've got a bunch of letters, a Paul, etc. So people who had groupthink, who all were biased and wanted a church as an institution, to succeed are the ones who ended up winning the war against everybody else who had their own interpretations of Jesus, of the kingdom of God, of salvation, etc. And so once they got power, they did the most heinous, ridiculous, stupid thing. They literally destroyed everybody else's views. 
and they destroyed everybody else, too. And then they present the wonderful false narrative that we have inherited and adopted and imagine is really real and true, which it's not, that, well, from the beginning, this was the understanding of Christianity. Notice the hint, the assumption, I should say, that there was a single Christianity. Historically, we now know that's not true. That's part of the false narrative. There were dozens of different types, interpretations of Christianity, just like there were with Judaisms, right? The scholars now know you can't say Judaism. There were Judaisms, plural, same with Christians. Well, sorry for the long diatribe, but that's important background for this subject, for this video. Nibley was especially fond of the Gospel of Thomas in the Gnostic materials. Now, I, I didn't really see him elaborate or describe or utilize or say to live by the principles of this Gospel of Thomas. I remember in one or two places he quoted from it. From my readings in his early Christian uh, scholarship, he quoted a lot more of the Pista Sophia, the books of Yehu, uh, you know, not a lot in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, although he should have. But, uh, so, but the nice thing is, someone acknowledged that he likes this Gospel of Thomas. Gillum says, should Nibley ever need to post a saying on his bedroom wall, it might be the following from the first chapter, third verse in Thomas, when you come to know yourselves, then you will become known, and you will realize that it is you who are the sons of the living Father. Nibley rightly feels that life is tedious for most people because they refuse to seek the mysteries of godliness. And to him, like Viktor Frankl, human existence is essentially self-transcendence rather than self-actualization. Full stop. I'm going to read that again. That is incredible that he put this in of the greatest Mormon scholar to ever grace their portals. But you'll never hear the church itself ever talk about this. So let me read this again. Viktor Frankl was one of the survivors of the Holocaust, and he wrote Man's Search for Meaning. A very important book that I was required to read in the 8th grade, right? Most of us were required to read it back then. Nowadays, people don't even know what the Holocaust was. That's how miserably dumbed down we've become, right? To Nibley, like Viktor Frankl, human existence is essentially self-transcendence rather than self-actualization. Self-actualization is, I'm going to be better. I'm going to improve. I'm going to impress people with my looks. I'm going to become rich. I'm going to become 
famous. I'm going to own a great big home. I'm going to have four cars and a five-car garage. I'm going to buy my motorcycle, my motorboat. I'm, 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 I'm going to do this. I'm going to accomplish this. That is self-actualization. I'm going to become like Heavenly Father. I'm going to become more righteous. I'm going to become a better scriptorian. I'm, 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 I'm going to make it to the uppermost celestial kingdom level. I'm going to be so righteous that I'm going to become a bishop, and then I'm going to become a state president, and then I'm going to be called as a general authority, and then I'm going to become a prophet, etc. That's self-actualization in support of the separate human ego Hunibly had the more spiritual, all-encompassing, fabulous view of self-transcendence. You'll never hear that talked about in church, will you? You've never heard anything about the idea, even, of transcendence. All you hear is, be obedient to certain precepts, repent of your sins, you know, you're guilty, you have to repent. If all you do is focus on your sins and worry, worry, worry about repenting, 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 because I'm a sinner, oh crud, I cooked the meat wrong, I'm a sinner, I have to repent, oh shoot, I felt sick and I skipped church, but I really could have went, so I'm guilty, and so I have to go talk to the bishop. Personal priesthood interviews, brother shirts, have you done this or this or this? Have you done this or this or this? Oh, you have? Well, we need to punish you for with shame for six weeks here. We need you to do this. We need you to do that, etc., etc. You go through all those hoops so that you can become more like God, which is just self-actualization. But that misses the real point. They don't talk about transcendence. Nibbly felt that was the point. And further, Gillum notes this. Humans spend too much time in these shallow mud puddles instead of learning to swim in the deep ocean or in the swift currents, for it is in such challenges that they can immediately extend, perfect, and intensify their senses. The real world, to Nibley, is beautiful beyond comparison. Nibley himself, like Aristotle, cares more for reality than for appearance. Acquisition of wealth other than by barter is unnatural, he condemns as morally wrong the unlimited pursuit of wealth beyond what is needed for the purposes of life. Is it any wonder Mormonism chooses still to ignore Nibley now that he's dead almost as much as they chose to ignore him when he was alive? <laughs> right? 
that a book on Hugh Nibley talks about self-transcendence, that's big news. That's critical. Especially when it comes to this subject, the kingdom of God. Is that lamp... That lamp is making me glow. Holy crap. So here's the thing about this subject, uh, this kingdom of God. The, uh, the church, early on, 400 AD, was given political power, and it used it tremendously to overrule everything and to acquire both political and religious strength, of course. And it wanted to, you know, Jesus became Cosmocrator and Pantocrator, the universal god of power. God will conquer. God will prevail. And who are you, puny human, to defy God? See, that was their approach, right? And they never lost it until through the Protestant Revolution. By that time, they had become so corrupt and so powerful. You know, they called forth the Crusades, and they just destroyed anybody who didn't think like them, look like them, act like them, dress like them, eat like them, pray like them, think like them, um... Everything. They wanted everything because they held objective truth. Well, <laughs> sounds a lot like Mormonism today, you know. You can believe anything you want, just don't talk about it. You can have a true testimony as long as it fits our definition, right? You know, first, Jesus Christ, second, Joseph Smith, third, the Book of Mormon, fourth, the Living Prophet. All else is superfluous. But if you don't get those four, you don't have a proper testimony. And therefore, you are guilty of something. You're hiding a sin. See, here's that guilt and fear. You're hiding a sin. You need to go repent. You need to pray harder. You need to make sure the Holy Ghost gives you the correct testimony, which is our view. See. What about this kingdom of God? Well, Joseph Smith literalized it. You know, in one of these, in one of these, I've got the Joseph Smith papers right here. What are these volumes? I think it's this one. The administrative records. Astonishingly, it shows that Joseph Smith, in abject secrecy, fundamentally so, with John Taylor and Wilfred Woodruff and the Pratts and several other brethren, they all crowned themselves kings of the world, right? Astonishing. I mean, talk about anti-American constitution. Wow. Talk about anti-Book of Mormon. I mean, wow, you know. Talk about lawbreakers, and yet they did it. Because they, Joseph Smith in his naive simplicity, literalized everything, right? So when Jesus, especially in the book of Mark, you know, the book of Mark, the gospel, emphasizes this kingdom of God idea, and the kingdom of God is coming soon, here are the signs to look for, uh, you know, all of the, the, the difficulties, the earthquakes, the hailstorms, the, the heavens, you know, the moon turning to blood and the stars falling, 
all kinds of portents. Matthew 24, the important apocalyptic chapter in that gospel. Well, this kingdom of God subject is a big subject, but everyone, even back then, man, everyone was taking it as a, a literal structure, and you know, politically, spiritually, economically. However, you assume in your background it is a literal structure that we need to become members of. Right? I mean, who wants to be found outside of the castle of protection, especially in the Middle Ages, when there's all kinds of bands of marauders, robbers, people that'll kill you, the Robin Hoods, and all of those bad guys, the infidels, the heathens, the Gentiles, the pagans. Ooh, watch out for those pagans. So everybody needed to belong to a safe kingdom. The idea of the kingdom of heaven is a refuge, a place of safety, a place of peace. So you wanted to be a member of that kingdom, right? That was everyone's concern. So it's a literal entity one entered into a relationship with. That's the idea, right? Well, fascinatingly enough, The Gospel of Thomas, now this is the one that apparently Nibley himself really, really loved. And that bumps him up in my estimation. And of course the Gospel of Thomas is one of the most famous Gnostic Gospels found in 1945. Back in the early days of the church, uh, after Jesus, uh, uh, when the monks and the monasteries, the rise of the monasteries and the monks, and uh, some dingling idiot who wanted to imagine he was a true Christian, commanded all the monks to destroy all of the heretical writings. The heretics! Those heathens! Damn them to hell! Destroy their writings! Well, thank goodness the real Christian, whichever monk it was, decided he's going to disobey those idiotic, heavenly given orders, right? And instead of destroying the writings, he went and hid them, and they were found in Nag Hammadi, 1945. And now we know who the Gnostics were. This Gospel of Thomas is probably the most famous one. Now, Willis Barnstone, the Gnostic Bible. You gotta get this. Fabulous book. Superb collection of many, many materials that were not ca canonized. Uh, and then, of course, you have James Robinson, the Nag Hammadi Library. Then you have Bentley Layton, the Gnostic Scriptures. All of these guys have the Gospel of Thomas with various interesting notes, commentary. This is by Grant and Friedman, The Secret Sayings of Jesus. This one, oh, this is a wonderful one. Uh, Le Loup, The Gospel of Thomas, The Gnostic Wisdom of Jesus. Barely new translation. And then this one, of course, Helmut Kessler, probably one of the greatest scholarly analysis of the Gospel of Thomas in ancient Christian Gospels. We now know there are a lot more than four Gospels. It was political maneuvering and stupid stuff like that that forced the people to accept only four Gospels. We know there were at least 30 or 40. And so this Gospel of Thomas has been fairly well studied. Now, I'm going to share some selections of a book with you of Elaine Pagel's, her book, Beyond 
belief. Now, if you haven't read this, I'm not kidding you guys, you're cheating yourselves. Seriously, I mean, by now, it's 2003 book. By now, really, truly, you could go on Amazon and probably find a used paperback for anywhere from $5 to $11. If the book was $75, I would seriously tell you, sell what other, other stupid books or some extra clothes or whatever you can to get the extra money and, and buy this book. It's that good. She's like Nephi. She, she loves words of plainness, and yet she is scholarly. She knows like four or five different languages. She's one of the greatest early Christian scholars, and she really does a fantastic job of analyzing, comparing the Gospel of Thomas with the Gospel of John in this book, and then she describes the process of the canonization and the elimination of unfortunately, because of the stupidity of the early Christian leaders who thought they were receiving revelation, they ended up making anyone else's point of view a rivalry, which is just as stupid as how Boyd K. Packer handled things in Mormonism. He viewed with distrust anybody who wanted to tell the truth. He wanted faith promoting history. So he made a rivalry where none needed to be, right? And now the church is suffering terrifically for it. You know, karma, I'm just saying. So Elaine Pagel's Beyond Belief. Let me read a couple of selections on her idea of the Gospel of Thomas and give us a another nuance about this phenomenal subject of the kingdom of God. We know the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John literalized it. They concretized it. They said, well, this, this is... Uh, and in fact, the people who won the war to, to make Jesus their God and to give us the false narrative that Jesus came to create his own church, etc. That's not at all what he did. But they love to say he did because that gave them the power. Uh, so they concretized and literalized the kingdom and threw everything else out. I've said that a thousand times. It's critical to realize how serious that was. Because any other interpretation, because it's not in the canon, is not proof that it's not true or accurate or correct. Because early Christianity can be interpreted in many different ways, just exactly like the Gospels can, just exactly like the life of Jesus can, and just exactly like this Kingdom of God idea can, right? So, let me get on with this. Elaine Pagel's Beyond Belief, and I'm going to skip and jump a few pages and read a little bit here and a little bit there. The discoveries of the Nag Hammadi, other than the quote, official versions of Christianity, which is just political statements, the philosophies of men mingled with scripture, and our canon today is still based on that ancient idiotic philosophy, which Joseph Smith in his naivety thought represented actual historical reality. Oh, well, there really were just four Gospels, and they were eyewitnesses to Jesus, and they were literal, etc., etc., etc. He didn't know anything about the Gnostics 
at all. Right? So we have a huge amount of new updated historical information to draw from in order for us to recognize a more accurate, greater context and understanding of not only Jesus, but the kingdom of God. Some call it the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. So these discoveries, these Malachamati Gospels, challenged us not only intellectually, but in my case at least, spiritually. Now, she says, I had come to respect, and she was an early Christian scholar, right? And she emphasized her studies on the Gnostic materials. I had come to respect the work of the Church Fathers, such as Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyons, circulated about uh, 180 AD, and he had denounced these secret writings as an abyss of madness and blasphemy against Christ. Ooh, ooh, you can just feel the pure holiness of his righteous wrath, all because they interpreted something differently. <laughs> Irenaeus could have been Boyd K. Packer, or maybe Boyd K. Packer was Irenaeus reincarnated boy, maybe that's why we're suffering like early Christianity did after this dip wad. Anyway, so she said, well, based on that, I expected that these recently discovered texts, I expected to seem garbled, pretentious, and trivial. She said, instead, I was surprised to find in some of them unexpected spiritual power. In saying such as this from the Gospel of Thomas, translated by Professor McRae, Jesus said, If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. Now the strength of this saying is that it does not tell us what to believe but it challenges us to discover what lies hidden within ourselves. And with a shock of recognition, I realized that this perspective seemed to me self-evidently true. And then she says, Gnostic refers to one who knows. That's the meaning from the Greek, right? Thomas teaches this, God's light shines not only in Jesus, but, potentially at least, in everyone. Thomas's gospel encourages the hearer not so much to believe in Jesus, as the gospel of John requires, as much as to seek to know God through one's own divinely given capacity, since all of mankind and womankind are created in the image of God. So moving on, John and Thomas give similar accounts of what Jesus taught privately, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who say that Jesus' warnings of the coming end of time, both John and Thomas say that Jesus directed his disciples instead toward the beginning of time. Quit focusing on when is it going to end. Go back to the beginning. Very interesting how this happens. 
to the account of Genesis 1 and identify Jesus with the divine light that came into being in the beginning. Thomas and John both say that this primordial light connects Jesus with the entire universe, since, as John says, all things were made through the Word, that is, the Logos, or the light. Professor Kester has noted such similarities in details and concludes that these two authors drew upon common sources while Mark and Matthew and Luke identified Jesus as God's human agent. In contrast, John and Thomas characterized Jesus instead as God's own very light in human form. So despite these similarities, the author of John and Thomas take Jesus' private teachings in sharply different directions. For John, identifying Jesus with the light that came into being in the beginning, that is what makes Jesus unique. This is in the Gospel of John. God's only begotten Son is how John puts it. John calls him the light of all humanity and believes that Jesus alone brings divine light to a world otherwise sunk into darkness. John says that we can experience God only through the divine light embodied in Jesus. But certain passages in Thomas's gospel now draw a quite different conclusion. That the divine light Jesus embodied is shared by humanity, since we are all made in the image of God. So Thomas expresses what would become a central theme of Jewish and later Christian mysticism a thousand years later, that the image of God is hidden within everyone although most people remain unaware of its presence. What might have been complementary interpretations of God's presence on earth became instead rival ones. For by claiming that Jesus alone embodies the divine light, John challenges Thomas's claims that this light might be present in everyone. Yeah, So that's where the rivalry, unfortunately, was set up. It was not necessary, but that's how those dinglings in the early times interpreted it. Just like the dinglings today in Mormonism interpret anybody coming to any other conclusion than their own sacred interpretations must be apostates, or they must be doubters or skeptics, and we have to call them to repentance, and then they heap on the guilt, and they make you fearful, and so on and so forth, and all of that extra noise is a complete waste of everyone's time. That's what the church doesn't want you to know. It wants you to waste your time focusing on its needs as an institution, not on your own self-transcending potential. Yeah. Thomas suggests instead that everyone in creation receives an innate, an innate capacity to know God. According to both the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of John, Jesus reveals that the kingdom of God, 
which many believers, including Mark, expect in future time, not only is coming, but it's already here. An immediate and continuing spiritual reality. According to the Gospel of Thomas, the living Jesus, it's always calling him the living Jesus, himself, he challenges those who mistake the kingdom of God for an otherworldly place or as a future state of existence. Here's what he says in Thomas. Jesus said, if those who lead you say to look, look for the kingdom is in the sky, then the birds of the sky will get there before you. If they say to you, it is in the sea, then the fishes are going to enter the kingdom before you will. He's trying to change their perspective away from a, a future thought. Come more to right now, here now. Good advice for right now, here today. You watching these videos, here now. This is what my video is about. Let's keep listening. I'm getting to the punchline. So Thomas claims that Jesus spoke differently when he was in secret with his disciples away from the crowds. His disciples said to him, When will the resurrection of the dead come? And when will the new world come? He said to them, What you look forward is already here, but you do not recognize it. And when they ask again, Well, when will the kingdom come? Thomas's Jesus says, it will not come by waiting for it. It will not be a matter of saying, here it is, or, oh hey, there it is. Rather, the kingdom of the Father is spread out upon the earth, and men do not see it. Well, the Gospel of Luke, interestingly, I'm glad she caught this. Of course, since she's a good enough scholar, she, she catches everything. She shows me stuff I thought I knew and I didn't. The Gospel of Luke includes passages suggesting that other believers in early Christianity agree with the Thomas Gospel view that the kingdom of God is somehow present here and now, immediately, right now, here and now, and it always has been here and now. Luke offers an alternative version of the same saying when he says, being asked by the Pharisees, now we're in Luke chapter 17, verses 20-21, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or hey, there it is. For the kingdom of God is within you. Now, a century ago, interestingly enough, from our day, a century ago, a book called The Kingdom of God is Within You by Leo Tolstoy urged Christians to give up coercion and violence in order to realize God's kingdom here and now. Thomas Merton the 20th century writer and Trappist monk agreed with Tolstoy. 
In certain passages then, the Gospel of Thomas interprets the kingdom of God as Tolstoy and Merton would do nearly 2,000 years later, and in fact, another very important Gnostic Gospel, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, also discovered in Egypt, echoes this theme. Jesus tells his disciples, Let no one lead you astray, saying, Lo here or lo there. For the Son of Man is within you. Follow thou him. And furthermore, the Gospel of Thomas and John, however, speak for those who understand Jesus' message quite differently. Both say that instead of warning his disciples about the end of time, Jesus points them toward the beginning. Here's how Thomas puts it. His Jesus also challenges those who persist in asking him about the end time. Have you found the beginning then that you look to the end? Here, too, he directs them to go back to the beginning, and here's why. For whoever takes his place in the beginning will automatically know the end, and will not taste death. That is, will be restored to the luminous state of creation, before the fall. Thomas, like John, identifies Jesus with the light that existed before the dawn of creation. According to Thomas now, Jesus says that this primordial light not only brought about the whole universe into being, but it shines through everything we see and touch. For this primordial light is not simply impersonal energy, but it is a being that speaks with a human voice, with Jesus's voice. Jesus said, I am the light which is before all things. It is I who am all things. From me all things come forth, and to me all things extend. Split a piece of wood, and I'm there. Lift up the stone, and you will find me. Thomas's gospel offers only cryptic clues, not answers, to those who seek the way to God. Thomas's living Jesus challenges his hearers to find the way for themselves. Jesus said, whoever finds the interpretation of these words will not taste death. Well, that's pretty good incentive, wouldn't you think? And he warns his disciples that the search will disturb and astonish them, uh, he says, let the ones who seek not stop seeking until he finds, and when he does find, he will become troubled. And when he becomes troubled, he will be astonished 
and will rule over all things. So here again, Jesus encourages those who seek by telling them that they already have the internal capacity and resources they need in order to find what they are looking for. There's no external set of church rules, creeds, articles of faith, or commandments. There is just a refocusing of the perspective from out there to in here. That's the Gospel of Thomas. Now, in Thomas, Jesus does not give instructions on how to pray, how to fast, how to do it, what to eat, how to make money, or give money, any of that. He answers only with another cone. Do not tell lies and do not do what you hate. For all things are plain in the sight of heaven. In other words, the capacity to discover the truth is within you. It's not based on anyone else's truth. And it's not based on anyone else's already experienced spiritual experiences. Yet Thomas Jesus does offer us some very important clues. After dismissing those who expect the future coming of the kingdom of God, as countless Christians have always done, and in fact, that's what a lot of us still do, right? Thomas Jesus declares this. He says, The kingdom is inside you and outside you. When you come to know yourselves, then you will be known. And you will see that it is you who are the children of the living Father. But if you will not know yourselves, you dwell in poverty. And it is you who are that poverty. Well, this cryptic saying, though, raises a further question, doesn't it? How can we know ourselves is what we want to know right? According to Thomas, Jesus declares that we must find out where we first came from. And we have to go back, and we have to take our place in the beginning. And then he says something even stranger. Blessed is the one who came into being before he came into being. Well, how can we go back before one's own birth, or even before human creation? What was there before human creation, even before the creation of the universe? Well, those are pretty poignant questions. According to Genesis in the beginning, there was first of all the primordial light, you know. I've read that in Hebrew in one of my videos. You all know the story. Uh, and so on and so forth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, all that. Yeah. Well, for Thomas, this means that in creating Adam, that is humankind, in his image, Genesis 1.26 says, God created us in the image of the primordial light. 
like many other readers of Genesis then and now. Thomas suggests to us that what appeared in the primordial light was a human being very marvelous, a being of radiant light, the prototype of the human atom, whom God created on the sixth day. This, quote, light atom, unquote, although human in form, is simultaneously, in some ways, also divine. Well, Jesus suggests that we have spiritual resources within ourselves to precisely because we were made in the image of God. Yeah, Thomas Jesus tells his disciples that not only he comes from forth from the light, but so do all of us. If they say to you, well, where did you come from? Say to them, we came from the light, the place where the light came into being by itself and was revealed through their image. Well, if they say to you, who are you then? Say, we are its children, the chosen of the living Father. According to Thomas, Jesus rebukes those who seek access to God elsewhere even perhaps especially those who seek it by trying to follow Jesus himself. And when they plead with him, show us the place where you are. Since it is necessary for us to seek it, he does not even bother to answer so misguided a question, but he redirects the disciples away from themselves toward the light hidden within each person. There is light within a person of light, and it lights up the whole universe. In other words, one either discovers the light within oneself that illuminates the whole universe, or lives in darkness. Now, I've got an astonishing video that I'm going to show you the address to. Dr. Zach Bush, Unlock the Creative Light Force Within. The YouTube channel is after school. It's about a 10-minute video is all. This has scientific evidence for what I've been telling you from the Gospel of Thomas. <coughs> Excuse me. And I really hope you think I'm pulling your leg. Because I'm not. So, that's basically what I wanted to share with you. The reason none of the churches out there want you to know this, none of them do, because it takes away their reason to exist, it takes away their power, it takes away their utility, it takes away their significance and importance, because in the big picture, they really are utterly trivial and useless. They really are. They are not what matters. You, what 
we are is what is the most important thing. Because I've got real bad news for every church out there. No church out there was crucified for me. So no church out there can save me if even that's the right concept. I'm not convinced that's a correct concept either. Gospel of Thomas has a very interesting, spiritually broad and deep and penetrating idea that we can actually discover. So I want you to go watch that video. And I want to thank you for watching my video, if you'd be so kind. Please feel free to share the link to this video on all of your own electronic outlets. Share the good word that I'm trying like crazy to share some good ideas to show you that actual value, actual truth, and actual love exists in us. We are the key to our happiness. And that is a decision we fortunately get to make. Right? Because it doesn't matter what happens to you. You can spend your whole life being bitter, lamenting what happened to you earlier in your life because that's not what you wanted. Well, I've got news for you. Nobody got what they wanted. But the experience is invaluable. Instead of lamenting it, being bitter about it, angry, fighting, and rebelling, and being mean and evil against others. Forgive and forget. Forgiveness is not for them. It's for you. So that we can move toward the light. Whoo! That's pretty bright stuff there. <laughs> Nah, the, the key is in your heart. And I'll share a lot more videos sharing a lot more information along this line. So anyway, thank you for attending my videos. Be good, do well, have fun, make friends. Be happy, enjoy the world. The world is a beautiful place. Enjoy it. Enjoy your eyesight. Enjoy your ears. Enjoy your sense of taste. Food is delicious. Be grateful for the food that we eat and don't waste it. Don't waste it. That was once alive, you know. Life feeds on life. Say yes to the process because this process of change is eternal. And that is what we are. Yeah. We're not something separate from the universe. You can't step outside Mother Nature and the universe. That ain't happening. You can't step outside yourself, but you can recognize that you are all-inclusive with everything happening. And that's a pretty heady revelation to come to. Okay, you guys, I will see you in the next Backyard Professor videos.